You have to love Easter. You have to love Easter. One of the biggest, if not the biggest problem that we have in our lives is death. Everybody hates it when somebody that we love dies, right? Everybody hates it when you get to that place in your life where you realize you're on the way out. And yet we all realize we can't do anything about it. We focus so much attention on trying to keep our bodies going, but the truth of the matter is we know that we can't stave off this reality. Every day we hear about somebody who's taken away from us by disease, who's taken away from us by an accident, by a shooting, by a tornado, and yet we try to live without ever thinking seriously about the fact that someday it will be our turn as well. You gotta love Easter. Easter is God shouting from heaven, death is dead. Or to quote God as he says it in the scriptures, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Here's how the Bible talks about it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here's what God says to us. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is a waste. There's no point in putting your faith in God if this life is all there is. That's what this text says. He says, if Christ isn't raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people. That's the Bible talking about our faith. But Christ has indeed been risen from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came to us through one man, the resurrection of the dead comes to us through one man as well. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. All will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, and then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You've got to love Easter. It's so opposite of what's so intuitive. And maybe you have a hard time believing that there's life on the other side of this life. Maybe for you personally, you have a hard time believing that. Maybe you realize that if that's really true, only God could really do that. And you're maybe not sure whether God is for you or against you. And maybe you're not like looking forward to on the other side of this life, meeting the God who created you. And so God wants to help us believe him. And I want to um, suggest to you that when you choose to believe God, it changes everything in your life. Everything in your life. And God wants to help us believe him. And so I want to invite you to take your Bible or the Bible that's there in the seats, turn to page 1115, 
Romans chapter 4. And one of the ways that God wants us, uh, wants to help us believe him is that he talks to us about something that happened way in the past that probably most of you are well aware of. But a long time ago, God came to a man by the name of Abraham. Long, long time, thousands of years ago. Came to a man by the name of Abraham. And still today, Jewish people, Christian people, and Muslim people look to Abraham as the human founder of their faith, of what they believe. And so a long time ago, God comes to this man, Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Israel came out of Abraham. Israel, the Israel that's still with us today. God said, before it ever happened, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And then God said this. He said, I am going to bless all the nations of the world through you. And through Jesus, who comes from the nation of Israel, comes this blessing to the entire world. And so God comes to Abraham, makes these promises to him, and so on. And then time goes by. And uh, when Abraham is 85 years old, he still doesn't have a kid. How am I going to become a nation if I don't even have a son? When Abraham is 99 years old, God comes to Abraham again. And God says this, I'm going to make from you many nations. 99 years old. You know what Abraham did? He laughed. He laughed. And Sarah, his wife, who's 90, she overheard. She laughed. But you know what? God didn't laugh. You know what God said? God said, is anything too difficult for me? Is anything too difficult for me? God didn't laugh. And in verse 17 of Romans chapter 4, God gives a description of what he's like. This is the living God. This is the God that we've come to worship today. Verse 17 says this, as it is written. Now we're, you know, we're way past Abraham now. We're on this side of Jesus. We're looking back in Romans chapter 4. And God says, I have made you a father of many nations. All the Arab nations came out of Abraham, as well as Israel. I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. Abraham believed God. Now listen, here's the description of God. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. That's what God is like. People wonder, well, what is God really like? Who really is God? What does he do? What's important to him? This is the God who describes himself as the one who gives life to the dead and the one who calls things that are not as though they were. That's the kind of God that the one true God who was actually there is. This is the way that God relates to people. This is what God is like. He gives life to the dead. He waits until Abraham and Sarah have absolutely nothing to contribute of their own to fulfill his promise, right? He waits for them to realize that they have nothing to contribute. And this is the God who calls things that are not as though they were. Way before things happen, God says, this is how it's going to be. And then God says, I want you to trust me. I want you to believe me. I want you to take me at my word. This is the way God is. This is how he operates. 
He waits till Abraham and Sarah have nothing to give, just like he waits for you and I to die. So we have nothing to bring to the table. But before it happens, he comes to us and says, I'm going to tell you what's not, what you don't see, what you don't really believe. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen on the other side of death, and I'm inviting you to take me at my word. Just like he came to Abraham and Sarah. And he makes these promises. And then he asks us simply to believe him. So look at these next few verses. Against all hope, now, talking about Abraham, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. He stopped laughing and he believed. And so he became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact, I love this, faith and fact. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Now, if you know Abraham's story, you know that his faith was not perfect. It was not a perfect faith. But God knew that he believed him. God knew that Abraham believed him. And this is the principle. If you believe God, and God knows, because he knows our hearts. If you believe God, God credits that belief back to your account as righteousness. The next verse. Verse 22. This is why it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. All God really needed from Abraham was for him to believe him, and God would do the rest. Abraham's faith wasn't a perfect faith, but Abraham believed God, and God knew it. And when Abraham believed God, God credited that to Abraham as righteousness. There is only one way that a person can be right in God's eyes, and it's through faith. It's through believing God. It's through trusting God. When it says that God credited to Abraham as righteousness, it meant from that point on, God saw Abraham as perfect, as holy. God credited to him as righteousness. Now, why is all that so important on Easter? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 23. Look at this. Verse 23. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. If you will believe what Easter is all about, God will credit your belief as righteousness to your account. And God will see you as righteous, as right in his eyes. This is such a phenomenal gift from God. You know, uh, you and I can go from being unrighteous. I mean, we all know that we're guilty, right? There's nobody here who would say, oh, no, I live up to God's standards. I never lie. I do everything God created me to do. Is there anybody here that's like that, doesn't really need Good Friday and Easter? You see, we can go from being unrighteous and having God be against us 
to being righteous and having God be for us on the basis of whether or not we believe Easter. And God knows when we believe him because he always looks on our heart. The minute we believe him, anybody can go from being guilty before God to being righteous in God's eyes through one principle, the same principle that was operative in Abraham's life thousands and thousands of years ago is the exact same principle by which God relates to people today. It's whether or not you will believe him. This God who calls things that are not as things that are. Do you believe him before you die? It's a big, undeserved favor. It's always been the way that God relates to people, from Abraham all the way down to today. What is God asking us to believe? Verse 25. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. That's the content of what God is asking us to believe. That God put Jesus on that cross to pay for our sin, that God judged him in our place, that he died our death for us, and if you believe that God raised him from the dead for your justification. Uh, justification means that through the resurrection, God proves to us that he accepted this sacrifice on our behalf. He proved to us through the resurrection that he was satisfied. And by the way, the words justification, that word justification, that's more than forgiveness. Like if, if you offend me, if you do something that offends me, I might forgive you, but I'm keeping my eye on you, right? I'm going to watch you. I'm not going to just like, you know, entrust myself to you again so quickly. You know what justified means? It's better than forgiveness. It means just as if I'd never sinned. That's the gift that God is willing to give anybody who will believe him, who will trust him, who will take him at his word who will understand, like verse 17 says, that this is the God who gives life to the dead and who calls things that are not yet as though they already were. And then simply ask people to believe him. This is the principle upon which God relates to people. Uh, this exact same principle is repeated again in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you, are, you confess and you are saved. Same principle. This is the only principle upon which a person can relate to the God who is actually there. God waited with Abraham and Sarah until all their strength was gone. They couldn't depend on anything in themselves, and so it is with us. Until you say, to yourself and to God. Hey, I don't have it in myself to be righteous. I cannot make myself right before God. Not to mention, I can't do anything about the sentence of death that was pronounced on me because of my sin. I do not have it within myself to reverse the effects of death. But if I turn to Christ, and if I believe the God who sent the Savior, if the perfect the God who crucified the perfect love of his life if I believe that God then raised him from the dead, God will credit me with his righteousness and promises to raise us from the dead as well. All on the basis of faith. Now listen, 
not faith in myself, not faith in my own efforts, not faith in my own goodness, not faith in a church, not faith in tradition, faith in the God who sacrificed Jesus Christ on the cross and brought him back to life. That's why the Bible says there is no other name given among men whereby you might be made righteous in the face of God. It's through Christ and him alone. He's the only begotten Son of God. This is the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Now, when you believe God, when you truly trust Jesus and believe yourself to be righteous in the eyes of God, it changes your entire life. It changes your entire life. So many things change. Immediately, you sense. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Immediately. Therefore, since we've been justified through Christ, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. One of the first things that changes is that we're able to experience the reality of peace with God. God is no longer against you. God is for you. You're no longer trying to hide from God, trying to avoid God, but you're drawn to him because he would do this for you and because he has these great and terrific, awesome promises about your future. You're no longer trying to shy away, but you're drawn to him. You're no longer hoping that you make it with God. You realize, I've already made it with God. I'm relaxed. And it's entirely dependent on him. Your grace is enough. And it changes everything. We have peace with God. I would tell you, if you put your faith in anything else, you won't have peace. When you put your faith in religion or a church or tradition or your own goodness, you never know if you're righteous enough. You're always wondering. I've had lots of conversations with people, and I love to ask people, you know, uh, if you were to die and, and stand before the gates of heaven and God were to ask you, why should I let you in here? What would you say? And I would tell you that 90% of the people that I talk to say, well, because I'm a good person. And then I love to ask the question, are you good enough? Are you good enough? And almost everybody will say, well, I'm not sure. Well, I said, I'm sure. You're not. <laughs> I can tell you, you're not. Nobody gets to God that way. But there is a way you can be sure. And it's when you believe the God who calls things that are not as though they were. The God who brings life to the dead. The God who brought Jesus up from the grave. You have peace with God. Another result that happens is in the second verse. It says, you know, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace, this undeserved favor in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope. I say people who believe God are happy. People who trust this God have a joy that comes from God, that can't be gained from this world. If you ask people, you know, if you just ask the question, what's really important to you in life? Almost everybody will say, I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. Well, how are you going about that? Because you don't seem too happy. Isn't that true? 
I mean, we live in America, right? I, I read this statistic that, you know, a, a person who's making $40,000 a year here in America is in the top, you know, 10% of the world's people. You'd think you'd be pretty happy. We're not happy because that's not where happiness comes from. Here's what God is saying. If you will trust me, if you will believe me, if you'll put your faith in me, if you'll take me at your word, you will be rejoicing in hope. There will be a source that will come from God that gets inside of you, and you will change. You will change because you will have this very sure hope. You will know that you matter to God. You will know that you are loved by God. You will be filled with hope that this God, who's made lots of promises and fulfilled every one of them, considers you significant, considers you worth sacrificing his son for, considers you so enjoyable to himself that he wants you to be with him around his table for eternity. And it will do something on the inside that will change your life now. This creates a huge joy. We have a future. We have a hope. We become optimists instead of pessimists because we know that this life is not all there is. And notice this. In, in verse 6, it says, you know, at just the right time, God had planned this from before the creation of the world. The Bible tells us that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Before the creation, God had all this in plan, all this in place. And the Bible says in verse 6, you see, at just the right time, now listen, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. There are four words here, uh, verses 6 all the way on down. There are four words that describe your life apart from Christ. If you don't want to believe God, if you're not sure, if you just think, you know, well, Easter's for all those people who are just being duped, well, here's how God sees you according to his word. There are four words here. He says, you're powerless, you're ungodly, your sinners and your enemies of God. Before Christ, we're powerless, we're ungodly, we're sinners, and we're enemies. That's God's assessment of our life apart from faith in his son. But the minute that we believe and God's spirit gets in our life, your powerlessness is offset by God's power. Do you know what the Bible says? The exact same power that brought Jesus back from the dead is at work in every believer. All of a sudden, you go from powerless to powerful. Not in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes. It's a different kind of power. It's the power of Christ. You know, Jesus came and he's... Can you think of anybody who's influenced the world more than Jesus? He had power. I think power is influence. I think leadership is influence. Who influenced the world more than Christ? How did he do it? He didn't do it in the way that we normally think. But he was powerful. And that's the kind of power that God says comes into our life the minute we believe. The minute you believe, God credits you with righteousness like he did with Abraham. So the minute you believe, that label of sinner is gone. It's not that you don't continue to sin. Even Abraham continued to sin. But the label of sinner in God's eyes is gone. And righteous is the new label. That's attributed to our account. It changes you. The minute you believe, God says he forgives us, he justifies us of our sin. A past, present, and future. It was all on Jesus, and now it's removed. The minute you believe, you become a daughter or a son 
of the living God. You are no longer an enemy, but a friend. And verse 11 puts it like this. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God. Can I suggest to you that um, originally God made us human beings to be with him? To be with him. You might remember that when God created the first, our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, God was with them. He walked in the garden with them. Okay? If you go clear to the other end of the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, in Revelation chapter 21 is describing, you know, the future that awaits us as believers. I want you to notice something. What's the attraction where we're going? What's the attraction on the other side of this life? Listen, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. The old order has passed away and all things have become new. What's the main attraction where we're going? God's going to be there. We're going to be with him. We were created to be with him. He's done all this so that we could be with him. Uh, God is three persons, right? If you peel back the layers of history and peel back all the creation stuff at the very core of the universe, you're going to find a God who is three persons, a relational God. A God who was so delighted in his relationship between the three persons that he created us to share that relationship so that we could be with him. That's what God had in mind when he created us. You remember in the Old Testament in Genesis, let us, God says, make man in our image. That's where we came from to be with him both at the beginning of God's word and the end of God's word, the focus is on being with him. Now notice what else the Bible says here in verses uh, 9 and 10 in our passage in Romans chapter 5. This is just great news. Just You've got to understand this. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through Christ? For if when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, now having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Paul's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, look, if God did this for you while you were his enemy, while you were ungodly, while you were sinful, how much more will God do for us now that we're his children? If God did all of this and put his son on the cross and so forth while we were his enemies, now that we're reconciled, now that we're justified, how much more will he do for us through his life? Now that he's alive. This business of being with God starts now. It's a gift that God gives to us. If God did all this for us while we were enemies, how much more? Two things in particular that God does for us that we, that we receive now, that we never, number one, that we never have to worry about God's wrath. We never have to worry. Verse 9 says, you know what? Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? 
You never have to worry once you believe God that God's wrath or anger will come against you. It's a grace. It changes your life. Now, I think ultimately, the Bible, you know, if we were to go on and read the rest of the Bible, it's talking about hell. Short of that, the Bible's talking about this period of time when God is going to come back and judge all the wickedness in the world. It's called the Great Tribulation in the Bible. And the church, the true church, is raptured out of the world before God's wrath comes upon it. It's a great truth. People are always saying, well, you know, if God is so powerful and God is so holy, why does he come and do something? Well, he's going to. He's going to. But you, as a believer, never have to worry that you're going to be on the receiving end of God's anger. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. You never have to worry about that. But short of that period of time, that great tribulation, what about the events and the circumstances in our life every day? What about the things that are happening to you this week? Do you ever think that perhaps God's angry at you and that's why this is happening? You're wrong. You're wrong. Discipline, maybe. Discipline comes from the love of a parent who cares. Anger and wrath is a different thing. And uh, this passage tells us, you know, that we never have to worry. Sometimes I talk to Christians and they'll say something like, I think God is mad at me. And I'll say, no, no. Or sometimes Christians will say this, I better really be careful how I live because if I'm not, God's going to get me. No, God already got Jesus in your place. Don't you understand? You never have to worry about the wrath of God coming into your life. It's one of these great benefits that, you know, if while we were enemies of God, he made this huge sacrifice, how much more, Paul says, now that we're reconciled, we don't ever have to worry about being on the receiving end of God's anger. That kind of thinking, when people talk like that, it reveals a way of relating to God that tries to get God's blessing but doesn't want God. God wants to be with us. We want God's blessing, but we don't want him. Anybody who's ever had teenagers, you understand this, right? I want what you can do for me, but I don't want you. I don't want you telling me what to do. I don't trust you. And it's an immature kind of faith that just fears God's wrath when it's already been vented on Jesus Christ. And then second in verse 10. Not only do we never have to worry about God's wrath, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more now, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Through his life. The life of Christ that's available to us now. We receive way more by his life. If you received all of this by his death, how much more, Paul says, will you receive by his life? The fact that he's alive today and he's available and he's the God who wants to be with us. And he will share his spirit to come and live within us that we as sons and daughters of the living God might be saved by his life. I think, um, I think people who would be happy to go to heaven even if God wasn't there aren't going to be there. I think Jesus came into the world not so much to get people to heaven but to get people to God. You know, the very great thing that the Bible says, the number one thing in God's mind, the number one concern of God for people, right, 
Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's about being with God. It's about being with the God who brings life to the dead and who calls things that are not as though they were to see if people will trust him, to see if people will take him at his word. It's about the God who took his son and put him on the cross and brought him back to life to see if people will trust him and put their faith in him in order that he might bless them and give himself to them. Right now, Jesus is alive and available, and he invites us to live with him, to talk to him. He taught us the Lord's Prayer, which I think is a pattern of a way to do life. You know how the Bible says, pray without ceasing? I think prayer is communication, but it's more than communication. It's communion. There's a way of doing life with God now as his sons and daughters whereby the very reality of Christ's presence in our life by his spirit becomes the very source of life within us to talk to him, to be connected with him, to be uh, united with him, to be abiding in him. And Jesus sharing his life, his spirit with us. Why? Because we have spiritual life. I think it's possible now, as the Bible says, for all Christians to do life on two levels. We all have an external level that we do life on, just like everybody else in the world. We have to pay bills, we have to go to work, we have to cut the grass, pull the weeds. We all have an external life. But a Christian also has an internal life animated by the very Spirit of God. This eternal life that God gives us that starts now and doesn't end, goes on into eternity, is a gift that God gives us. If he did all this while we were enemies, how much more will he do now that we're reconciled to him? And one thing that he does, he comes and he lives with inside of us. In John chapter 14, Jesus put it like this. Um, when he was here, he said this, I'm going to ask the Father and he's going to give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Now I love this because we live in a world where nobody believes that the, that the truth can be known. I was watching this TV program this week and it was about a guy who wrote a book who said there's more faith outside the church than in. They had a Jewish rabbi and a Catholic priest, and they were debating this guy's book. And neither of them were concerned about the truth. The truth about the God who actually exists and what he has to say. And it amazed me, and I thought of this passage where Jesus said, I'm going to give you the spirit of truth. You can know the truth. And you know what the Bible says? The truth is what sets you free. You want to be happy? You want to rejoice? You want to live with joy now and on into eternity? Embrace the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the truth. And that's why God says, you trust me. Uh, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him because he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore but you will see me because I live, you will live also. <laughs> because I live, resurrected Jesus, you will live as well. You can live the life of Christ today and on into eternity. That's the gift that God, this is the God who calls things that are not as though they were. If you trust him, it's the way he relates to people, through faith alone. You trust me, God says, and you will begin to experience eternal life now 
This is the gift of God that comes to us through the resurrection. Jesus is interceding on our behalf constantly. If God saved us while we were his enemies, how much more will he give life to us now that we are reconciled as his sons and daughters? I just want to point out one more thing. Verse 8. You see this um, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. This always trips me up. Verse 8 says this. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at the tense of the word demonstrates. Don't you think that's wrong? Shouldn't that say God demonstrated in the past his love? No, it's not wrong. It's what God intends for us to understand. God demonstrates in the present his love for us, not in your circumstances, not in your thinking. God demonstrates today his love for you in his son on Calvary's cross and invites you to believe him. That's the only way that you can relate to the God who is actually there. And when you do, we rejoice. It's a joy that comes into our lives way above our circumstances. It celebrates the triumph of Christ over death, celebrates the triumph over sin, over affliction, over sorrow, and it comes from God's spirit within us. And I want to tell you this morning in conclusion, God is waiting God is waiting for each and every one of us to simply believe him, to take him at his word, to, to trust God. This God, uh, the Bible says, for whom it's impossible to please him without faith. I don't care what you're doing to try to get to God. Without faith, the Bible says, it's impossible to please God. This is the way God relates to people, the same way he related to Abraham. You trust me, God says. I will credit my righteousness to your account. It's all a gift. It's all by an undeserved favor. And it's because I love you. And I'm still demonstrating today my love for you in this. That I took my only begotten precious son, put him on the cross, put all your sin on him, and crucified him in your place. That you might never die, but have everlasting life. God's waiting for each of us to simply believe him. You can do that today. You can choose to say, I believe that's the truth about who Jesus is, who he was, what he did. I believe that he died. I believe that he rose again, and God did it so that I could have everlasting life, the very life of God. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, it's so good to look all the way back thousands and thousands of years before there was ever an Israel to this man Abraham. And to see the principle, the basis upon which you relate to human beings through faith. And to think of how you sent your son into this world and simply asked people to believe him. But Father, we didn't. People crucified him. He was perfect. He negated all the goodness that we could come up with on our own. He lived the kind of goodness that was beyond our capacity to achieve. And so we crucified him. We had to get rid of him because he created a guiltiness in us. But you brought him back to life. And you've told us that we've totally misunderstood. That you sent him to die. 
You sent him to reconcile us while we were still enemies so that we could become daughters and sons of the living God and so that we could be declared righteous in your eyes and be looking forward with a great deal of joy to the everlasting life you provide through him. And so, Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. We thank you. And Father, I don't know everybody here this morning, but if there's anybody who has not yet believed that you're the God who brings life from the dead, and you're the God who proclaims things that are not as though they were, I pray, Father, that we could, everyone in this room, get in on that. And that by trusting you, we could have the joy that comes from hope, the hope of everlasting life. In Jesus' name, we thank you for this amazing grace.